Okay. So uh, the rest of you are staying in here uh, with uh, equal enthusiasm, I'm sure. So uh, we're, um, we've been looking over the last several uh, weeks at uh, Paul's second letter uh, to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've been exploring the conflict that Paul was in with the people in the church. His, uh, he had said he would come to see them and then he was unable to come see them and He expresses to them the reason why he didn't come see them is because he needed to rebuke some of the things that were going on in the church. And so he sent his friend Titus with a letter uh, to deliver to them. And so uh, we pick up with that uh, narrative now in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Paul writes... When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So this this is uh, uh, probably, if you've been around the church very long at all, or or heard, been to Sunday school or anything, you're familiar with this image in this text about fragrance, right? Of, of the uh, the gospel being proclaimed to people who believe it, it smells good. It's a, it's a beautiful fragrance. But to those uh, who uh, reject the gospel, who reject the good news of Jesus, it smells like death. It really stinks. It is is something that uh, they uh, don't want any part of. And so that's a, that's, that's, that becomes kind of a focal point for many people when they when they look at this text. But the the thing that I think about this is and this is this is a key text this whole section of, of chapter 2 is kind of the hinge of the book because up to this point in time Paul's been introducing uh and reintroducing and getting at the conflict that he has with the people in the church in Corinth. And then we have this section and then for the rest pretty much of the book he's going to be speaking about the theological things that he thinks are important. Now, what happens to us when we read this text, we focus upon this very powerful image of the fragrance of death and the fragrance of life. And what happens if you do that, you miss what I think is the real hinge that the book turns on. And that's what he says before that. Paul says to these believers, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, wait a minute, let's just stop right there. This is Paul the Apostle, preaching the gospel of Christ, what he does, who he is. Big, big. He wrote most of the New Testament, planted most of the churches. When we probably think of, of real missionaries, of people who are, would be, have been uh, profound in the work of God, we probably think of him. And so he says, so he came to Troas, that's north of Ephesus, where he was on his way to Macedonia, to preach the gospel of Christ. He came there to Troas, to preach the gospel of Christ. That's why he went there. I'm belaboring this because you're not paying attention to what's most important here. Okay? Um, 
even though a door was open for me in the Lord. So not only did he go to Troas to preach the gospel, there was a clear indication to him that God was at work and that God had opened a door. What, what, what exactly that means, I don't know, but he had every opportunity to do it, right? So it's what he does, it's who he is, and God opens up an opportunity. Sounds like dynamite, right? My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, <clears throat> You got to see that as a failure. And I know it may sound like you're saying Paul the Apostle failed. Yes, I am. Because Paul is saying he failed. He failed. And why did he fail? Well, he failed because his heart was broken over the broken relationship that he had with the church at Corinth. He had sent Titus with this letter to address them, and he was waiting to hear from Titus to see how Titus had been received, to find out how things were going there in Corinth, whether whether they still loved Paul, whether they were doing the things that they needed to do to be faithful in the gospel. And it was so overwhelming to him, the brokenness of that relationship and the anxiety that he experienced, that even though he went to Troas to preach the gospel, to plant a church, he was so overwhelmed emotionally by this broken relationship that he had with this church, so anxious to hear back from Titus, he left, even though a door was open to him. Now, let me ask you, what do you do with failure? Now, in our culture, the way we like to talk about failure is like it's not really a failure at all. You know what I mean? Like this, from Samuel Beckett, the playwright, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, Fail again, fail better. Right? That sounds good. You know, that's, that sounds like those kind of stupid, uh, unwise posters, motivational posters that people put up in their offices to get them to do stuff, right? It sounds like, take a risk. You know, fail big, right? Which sounds great when you're the one that's doing the failing, right? But what happens if this is hanging up in your doctor's office? <laughs> right? What happens if this, this, this is the, the, the message of your attorney? What happens if this is the message of somebody you're counting on? Right? Yeah, man. I'm paying you money and putting my health in your hands for you to fail better. Right. I have to say, I think this is a pretty profound thing. I think it's a dramatic thing that Paul, the apostle who who uh, probably had a, a more profound experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ than than most people have ever lived, who had profound success in the planting of churches. The fact, truthfully, in many ways, humanly speaking, if it weren't for Paul, the apostle, we might not be here today. Confesses to a church with which he is having a conflict, that he failed. And that he failed even as... It's one thing to fail, and he mentions this a number of times in, in his, his preaching where he goes and he preaches and, and nothing happens, right? 
He preaches that great sermon there in Athens. Uh, but there was no church planted in Athens. But here, he goes to Troas with the purpose of preaching the gospel. He even sees and must admit that God has opened a door for him. He set the table. Everything's ready. But he is so distraught and so troubled, he leaves. He leaves. This is instructive. Because the truth of the matter is, for most of us, for most of what we do, for most of of our attempts at being faithful to Jesus Christ, and most of our attempts at being faithful in the proclamation of the gospel, there are many times where we are overwhelmed and overwrought by things that that, 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 that... Well, we're just not a success. We're a failure. And it's also instructive to me because for many of us, we are ready and willing and able to live with broken relationships with other believers, with our brothers and sisters, with people we love, people we know. We make ourselves invulnerable to that and we go on as if everything is fine. And yet what we see here is Paul is so sensitive, and I, and I use that word in a, in a positive sense. He, he is so aware of the brokenness and the, the challenge that his relationship is with the church at Corinth that it weighs on him so heavily, even though God sets the table before him and opens the door for the proclamation of the gospel there in Troas, he is unable to do it and he must leave. He leaves. Right? So he admits here in this passage, not so much to a sin, but to a failure of monumental proportions due to human weakness. I think it's fair to say that. I think uh, that he's, he's overwhelmed with, uh, as he says, uh, uh, as we'll see in a few minutes, that his, his, his body was and his heart was just racked with fears and Fighting, and it was just a terrible situation. This this failure is what drives him then to preach the gospel in this letter all the more strongly for the next several uh, uh, chapters. He had traveled north from Ephesus to preach the gospel in Troas because a door was opened for him and the Lord. Now, you know, one of the things that's profound about this is, so he fails in Troas. And yet what we'll see in the coming weeks is some of the richest and most profound words in the Bible are found in the next couple of chapters. You know that image of the treasure in clay jars? It's right here. It's coming up. That great verse, that, that one verse kind of uh, uh, verse that summarizes the gospel He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a profound verse written by a man who has just first confessed that God opened a door for him and he couldn't walk through it. That's profound. Uh, and it's it's instructive to me to to see that and to 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 unpack that. He says his spirit was not at rest because he was waiting to see Titus, who would bring him information about the church in Corinth. And so he goes on as we as we looked last week. He kind of summarizes this section in chapter seven by saying this: For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without. 
and fear within. Right? Fighting without and fear within. Our bodies had no rest. He's spending sleepless nights with his concern over what's going on in Corinth. And, and he's a wreck. He's a wreck. But God who comforts the downcast, meaning himself, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he finally sees Titus there in Macedonia. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So he goes from fears within and fightings without, calling himself the downcast, to hearing this report and seeing how the, the, the people in Corinth had received his message from Titus and he's renewed with and restored and he's comforted and he's energized, right? So it's a pretty, pretty, pretty interesting, pretty profound picture here of, of his personality, of, of what he cared about and, and, and what drove him. But the thing that you have to see about this is, is that the, it's the very crucible of his relationship with his fellow brothers and sisters, the very crucible of the work that God had for him, that even this man failed. Because he was so broken and overwhelmed uh, by what was going on and the brokenness of his relationship. Next slide. He was unable to preach the gospel, even though the door was open, because of his concern for the Corinthians. Now that's a pretty powerful picture for us, and I think that's instructive to us. I think I think it would be helpful for us to think a little bit about the value of relationships that we have with one another, the value of our of our fellowship with one another, that it is so precious and so profound that once strained, it affects and in fact guts our ability to be able to proclaim the gospel. It affects our ability to be faithful in the way in which God calls us to be faithful. And so I think this is a, this is a pretty powerful thing. I'm not blaming Paul. I'm not saying anything. I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing that he is able to say and confess to these people who were very critical of him that his heart for them was so big and so broken uh, that he actually missed an opportunity that God had for him. Nevertheless, he moves on because as Titus has come back and given him this good report, he is immediately able to say to speak about the triumphal procession of Christ and his place in that triumphal procession. Uh, Christ's triumphal procession continues through the world regardless of apparent setbacks like Paul's trouble in Troas and also those who think uh, the gospel stinks. Because he goes right from this. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God. 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now, what Paul has in mind here is something that you probably you, you probably can visualize. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for for a general or a political leader or someone to come into town to lead a parade uh, and uh, for there to be this triumphal procession. You know, you can go back and look at Bible movies from the 50s and see this, right? And and not only was this a, 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 a great thing for the city to gather together to see the triumphal procession, that they could see it, they could hear it, but one of the things that was great about it was they could smell it because they led and went through the procession with incense. Incense. Something uh, Westerners don't uh, spend a lot of time thinking or smelling or dealing with, right? Um, one of the wonders and one of the great things about this congregation is our ability uh, to have within our building, worshiping at any one time, folks from all over the world. Now, there's a Coptic Egyptian church that worships here. There's a, a church <clears throat> made up of Nepalese folks that worships here. There's a, there's a, a, a church of um, uh, folks from South Sudan who worships here. There's folks who worship here uh, in Spanish, right? So, so that, what a rich and wonderful and powerful thing. Well, uh, in, the, in years past, we've had folks come and go and, and do that. One of, one of the, my favorite churches of all time that worshiped here was an Ethiopian church. They had the coolest outfits, frankly. <laughs> I really liked the hats that the guys who led the service. The service. I mean, they, they were impressive. I'd like one of those hats. I don't know where you get them, but they looked really cool. So, uh, But one of the reasons why they weren't able to stay here with us was a big part of their worship was burning incense. And uh, we didn't think burning things in here was such a good idea. Uh, and there's so many of us who are sensitive to smells. And so we, uh, we told them, you can worship here and you can, you can gather here all you want, but you can't burn that incense uh, in here, which I think was a good and wise thing. <clears throat> Although I have to say, it is a pretty powerful thing to think about that God smells. He smells these things, as he says in this text. And that part of the, the way the gospel is portrayed here is, and the way it's talked about is, it's aroma. It's fragrance, right? Um, and there's, <clears throat> there's something powerful about that because if I'm not mistaken, as I remember from my elementary psychology classes in colleges, uh, that uh, smell is a strong uh, connector to memory, right? You smell something and it takes you back, right? You smell something that smells a particular way and you, you kind of connect with, with things that you remember. <clears throat> well, what, what Paul's getting at here is, is that this gospel pro proclamation and this gospel procession of the victorious Jesus Christ is going on through the world and that there are people who hear it and participate in the procession and there are people who hear it and reject the procession because it stinks to them. And, and all of this is happening even though there are times and there are places where people like Paul and like us fail, fail in the proclamation of the gospel. 
that our failure does not keep the procession from moving on through the earth. And so one of the things that you have to see about what he gets here is thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, one of the things that you have to see about this is we need to be sure and we need to be clear about what it is that Paul is proclaiming. Because one of the things that happens to us is um, what exactly is this good news? What exactly is this gospel that he's proclaiming? Because one of the things that happens to us very often is we get confused about what the good news is. Now, you may be saying, how can I be confused about what the good news is? I, I've been a Christian a long time. I, I, I went to Sunday school. I, I've grown up. I've, I've heard the gospel uh, all my life, and, and I believe it. <clears throat> but all of us get confused. All of us tend to think that the gospel usually, usually for many of us, becomes God loves me, Jesus is for me, and I need to be about this to guarantee that he'll still love me. Or, or that, that somehow or other that the gospel is connected to a particular political viewpoint. Or that the gospel is connected to a, a, a particular kind of behavior that we look for. Now, while the gospel changes our behavior, it reorients our affections. It changes what we love. Uh, it changes what we hate. All of those things are true. The fact is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, lived a life for unreconciled sinners, for people who had broken the law of God, and he gave his life as a ransom to purchase them forever for God, that out of his good favor and out of the concern for the glory of God and his love for people who were rebellious against him, He died and he rose again. And that that is the kernel, the central thing that is the fragrance of life to those who believe and the fragrance of death to those who don't. Um, I went to uh, my my friend Spurgeon wrote about this and he he spoke about a um, a, a, an English pastor named John Berridge. Some of you hear that name and you think that name seems vaguely familiar to me. Well, it should, because we sing his hymns. He was a, uh, a, a British uh, a Church of England pastor in Everton. Uh, he never married, died of asthma. Uh, uh, we, uh, one of the hymns that we sing, Jesus Cast a Look on Me, Keep Me in Sweet Simplicity, that, that song. He wrote that song, among others. Well, Beeridge was a pastor, and <clears throat> he uh, was a pastor for a long time before he was converted. Now, you may think, well, I know plenty of pastors in Richmond, and I can tell you they're not Christians. They're, they're something else. They're not Christians because they're preaching another gospel or, or whatever. Well, the thing about Beeridge is Beeridge, you probably would go to Beeridge's church and think, wow, that was, that was powerful stuff because look at what he said. John Beeridge says he preached morality till there was not a moral man left in the village, Right? And there's no way of injuring morality like legal preaching. That's not against attorneys. That's simply uh, uh, confusing the law and the gospel, preaching the law to people like it's the good news, telling people that if you do certain things and don't do other things, you're saved. 
when salvation is found in no other but Jesus Christ. So the preaching of good works and the exhorting men to holiness as the means to salvation is very much admired in theory. And in fact, most preachers today that are popular and that get a hearing in, in, in America uh, either tell you that uh, you can have your best life now and tell you what that is and tell you how to get that, give you some advice and what I call derisively tips preaching. Let me give you some tips on money management and child rearing and relationships. And that becomes confused with the gospel because there's no Jesus in that. And because there's no Jesus in it, there's no offense and there's no grace. Right? So he says it's very much admired in theory, but when, when brought into practice, it is found uh, not only ineffectual, but more than that, it becomes even a savor that is a fragrance of death unto death. So it has been found. And I think even the great Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers, himself confessed that for years and years before he knew the Lord, he preached nothing but morality and precepts. But he never found a drunkard reclaimed by showing him merely the evils of drunkenness. But boy, does it ever get a crowd. You can, all, all you have to do is say, you know, stop drinking or uh, quit being a drunk or something like that. It gets real quiet in here. Nor did he find a swear, stop his swearing, because he told him the heinousness of the sin. It was not until he began to preach the love of Jesus in his great heart of mercy. It was not until he preached the gospel as it was in Christ in some of its clearness, fullness, and power and the doctrine that by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, that he ever met with success. But when he did preach salvation by faith, by shoals the drunkards came from their cups. Wow, I like that. They came from their cups. Um, <clears throat> I, I like I like that phrase. And swears refrained their lips from evil speaking. Thieves became honest men. And unrighteous and ungodly persons bowed to the scepter of Jesus. But you must confess, as I said before, that though the gospel does in the man produce the best effect upon almost all who hear it, either by restraining them from sin or constraining them to Christ, yet it is a great fact and a solemn one upon which I hardly bow to speak this morning, that to some men the preaching of Christ's gospel is death unto death and produces evil instead of good. Wait, wait a second, Megan. And you're all like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly who he's talking about. I, I, I know who he's speaking to. I know those hard-hearted sinners. I know exactly who they are. Next, next paragraph. And the first sense is this. Many men are hardened in their sins by hearing the gospel. Oh, tis terribly solemnly true that of all sinners, some sanctuary sinners are the worst. Aren't you glad we don't have a sanctuary? We have a worship area. <laughs> right? Right? This is not people who hide. Sanctuary sinners are the people in the church. Sanctuary sinners are the worst. Um, we were laughing in my men's group on Friday morning about the necessity of having a retractable thing on your car so that when you drive aggressively or you get in a road rage situation, you can hit a button and the, the, your little Christian symbol on your car would flip over <laughs> so nobody could see it. Not that 
in, that, that's not applicable to any of us, I'm sure, but um, sanctuary sinners are the worst. Those who can dive deepest into sin, and I would say those whose consciences are seared and are hardened, just hardened. They can pray the prayer. They can cite the theology. They can act and say the church words. And their heart is dead as a doornail. Those who can dive deepest into sin and have the most quiet consciences and hardest hearts are some, are, are some who are, found, are to be found in God's own house. I know that a faithful ministry will often prick them. I wonder. I wonder. And the stern denunciations of Abu Nergis, that's the uh, uh, Zebedee boys, that was Jesus' nickname for them, sons of thunder, when they wanted to call down fire on a village in Samaria that wouldn't receive Jesus, will frequently make them shake. I'm aware that the word of God will sometimes make their blood curdle within them. But I know, for I have seen the men, that there are many who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Make even God's truth a stalking horse for the devil and abuse God's grace to palliate their sin. We, we, have, we have folks like that here who sin boldly uh, uh, and uh, wantonly without any reference, thinking that God's grace covers that and they don't really care. That is a problem, but that's not our biggest problem. Our, our biggest problem and our hardest issue as a congregation is exactly the opposite, that we find our righteousness in ourselves. That we think, that we know, that we are acceptable ultimately to one another and to God because, well, we just are. And we know better. And we look about us. And I will tell you, if you're thinking, how would I know that's me? How, how could you diagnose that in me? What to how often do you compare yourself to others? How often do you compare your ability to parent or your ability to love or your ability to shepherd or your ability to do anything and you compare that to another? Trust me, you're, if you're doing that and you take comfort from that, your heart is hard and you... And I give the lie to the fact that the gospel of grace, the man nailed naked to a stake who died our death, has no impact upon me because ultimately I look around me and I feel pretty good because at least I'm better than them. That's an abuse of God's grace to palliate our sin, to think somehow or other we know better and are better. And, you know, it's just icing on the cake that we have the true gospel. So as Paul says this, as he speaks this, and he looks at the wonder of the gospel and he sees its effect upon himself and upon his hearers, he says, who is sufficient for these things? 
This is so big and powerful and profound and mysterious. Who can tell and who knows when the gospel goes forth what, it might, what, what fruit it might bear and what it might do to people and how it might change people and how it might actually even harden people in their sin. And so it is a, it is a terrifying thing for him to proclaim the gospel, for him to confess his failures in proclaiming the gospel, and yet in the end to root his hope and his joy and, and his hope for his ministry and for himself in the triumphal procession of the crucified Savior who leads us ever in joyful procession. Only God is sufficient for this. So a couple of things to remember, friends, that... Uh, as you think about your life, as you think about your attempts to share the gospel, your attempts to speak the truth to others, you need to remember that it's Jesus' procession and not yours. He is the one that died. He is the one who gets the glory. Secondly, the Lord is ultimately the determiner of how we smell. You can proclaim the gospel and you speak a word, but it is up to God to make that fragrance beautiful to those to whom we speak. So often we agonize over conversations or things that we've done where we want to say, oh, if I just said this or if I just read that book and could have answered that question at that moment or if I could have just done this or I could have just done that, I know I could have saved them. Now, we wouldn't say I know I could have saved them, but we say I know that that would have made all the difference. Well, maybe it would have, but the fact of the matter is the odor of the gospel is only made sweet by the power of God. And it is a mysterious and a profound and terrifying thing to preach the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ and to look into the eyes of people you love and, and people you know, people who you, you long to see confess their sins and trust Jesus Christ, long to repent of their hardness and their coldness. And you long to do that. And some people will and some people won't. The Lord is the determiner of how we smell. The results are left up to him. He is the one who determines success or failure. And frankly, for people like us, I can't think of anything more maddening. <laughs> Honestly, because what do you want? You want people you love to believe the gospel. And it's not up to you. It's not up to you. It's not up to you. Trust me, I know. Because if I could make it up to me, I would. Because I think that highly of my abilities. Recently, I had a conflict with somebody who... Uh, doesn't believe, and was blaming me for their unbelief. That's, that's a happy conversation, you know. Uh, I think everybody should have one of those in life, just, you know, just so you can sit, put that in your bucket list and say, yeah, I did that, and I live to tell the, the tale. <clears throat> and uh, in the course of this conversation, I finally looked at this person and I said, listen, here's what I believe. I believe... Contrary to all evidence that you are presenting to me, uh, you will die a Christian, and I'll see you in heaven. Now, he was spoiling for a fight. 
And I just took that away from it. I'm like, look, it's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's up to God. I believe he's good, and I believe he loves you. So I believe I'll see you in heaven. So let's just take the pressure off and talk about the ball game instead of all my failures. Because you know it's a, it's a funny thing when somebody lists your failures for you. Um, I'm always terrified when somebody comes to me to tell me all the ways I've failed. But, you know, it's fascinating. Almost never do they actually tell me the real places I've failed. He said to me, you shouldn't have made me go to church. He said to me, you shouldn't have uh, forced me to go to that school where they told me the truth. And I responded defensively, well, we made you brush your teeth too. But the fact is, the truth is, the gracious procession that the Lord has for us, it's his procession. And so I could say to him, I, you know, I said, I'm so relieved that you didn't come at me with the things that I thought you were going to come at me with. And he's like, what? I'm like, all the times I lost my patience with you. All the times I got frustrated with you. All the times you made me mad and I yelled at you. Those things keep me up at night. But making you go to Sunday school, trust me, I'll never lose a night of sleep over that. Ever. <laughs> Ever. You'll die, Christian, because God's good. That took the pressure off and changed everything. It's a maddening thing to entrust somebody you love into this Jesus' hands. But nothing could be better, nothing could be safer, and nothing could be more comforting than that. It's his procession. It's his gospel. It's his work. And we're his people. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you today for your goodness and your love and your mercy. We, we rejoice in uh, how um, the fact that we can entrust uh, the gospel even into your hands. It is good news to us to know that, Jesus, you have reconciled us to God. You have reconciled us to one another. Lord, we confess our failures. We confess our self-righteousness. We confess, uh, um, well, all these things about ourselves. And yet, it doesn't stop the procession. And it doesn't even stop the gospel from having its impact. And so, Lord, today we pray for those that we love, for those with whom we desire to see them bow the knee. Lord, I pray today for those among us who um, have used the gospel, as Spurgeon said, as a palliative for their sin, who quiet their conscience with no repentance, who look at their lives simply as a calculus against others and take heart and measure their righteousness that way. Forgive us, convict us, restore us, redeem us. 
Lord, we pray today uh, that uh, as sanctuary sinners, you would renew and restore us, that you would help us. Lord, we uh, confess today that we are tempted in so many ways to appear and to rely upon our own competence and our own gifts instead of you, our Lord, who leads us in triumphal procession. Lord, I pray the gospel would be sweet, that it would have its power, and that it would have its success in bearing fruit in our hearts first and then in the ones we love. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.